0: Welcome to The Great Books Podcast. Today, we'll talk about Black Beauty by Anna Sewell. I'm your host, John J. Miller of National Review, and you're listening to a production of National Review. Our guest is... Karen Swallow Pryor, a professor of English and Christianity and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in North Carolina. Her books include On Reading Well, Finding the Good Life Through Great Books, as well as a forthcoming book due this August called The Evangelical Imagination, How Stories, Images, and Metaphors Created a Culture in Crisis. She's podcasted with us previously on Flannery O'Connor, Shusaku Endo, and most recently Thomas Hardy. She joins us by phone as we record from Hillsdale College's campus radio station WRFH in Michigan. Karen, welcome back to The Great Books Podcast. It's
1: great to be back with you, John.
0: Why is Black Beauty by Anna Sewell a great book?
1: It is a great book because it is great literature, it's great literary art, and because it does have a permanent and prominent place in the literary canon. Um, It's not a masterpiece, I don't think, um, but it certainly is a classic by any measure.
0: We'll talk about this book, its characters, its popularity, its enduring influence, and a lot more. Let's just jump right into the story. Chapter one is called My Early Home, and it starts this way, quote, the first place I can well remember was a large, pleasant meadow with a pond of clear water in it, unquote. That sounds nice, also a little ordinary, until we realize that the narrator is a horse, readers discover this really quickly because there's a reference to eating grass. Uh, what's going on here, Karen?
1: Well, this is just an example in a long tradition of stories narrated by animals, um, stories told by animals. I think what what takes one um, off guard a little bit with this book is that it's not, if you pick it up, like we used to do before there were Kindles, <laughs> if you pick it up, it's it's a full-length novel. It's got smaller type um it doesn't look like a children's book um and so you're not expecting it to be a book spoken by a horse and it, it very much is but it also is not a children's book
0: let's explore that a little bit because black beauty has a reputation i think as a kid's book in what way is it not a kid's book and and how did we start thinking of it as a kid's book it,
1: very much a children's book because it is a great story for anyone to read. But it was written at a time when children's literature was really just emerging. It wasn't the kind of category that we have today that we call young adult literature. Um, it was a book that Sewell wrote. For a whole range of readers, but primarily um, adults and generally male members of the working class, the people who were working with horses. And so it was written for adults to learn about horses and and the care of horses. It ends up telling a a pretty delightful story and, of course, in a delightful way, being spoken by the horse, which makes it very attractive to children. And there are lots of adaptations of it that are, you know, kind of watered down more to their level. Uh, But it was a book that was written um, for grown-ups.
0: It's not a long book. It's a pretty short book, as novels go, which is part of the attraction, I think. Also, the prose is really highly readable.
1: Yeah, it it is. I mean, this this draws on what literary scholars call the plain style. Sewell was uh, a Quaker. Uh, The plain style is most associated with the Puritans, of course, going back to the 17th century. But uh, even the Quakers... um, adopted this style that uses plain, vivid, sort of unadorned prose, which isn't, um, it, it's still very literary because it's vigorous and muscular and pleasing. It makes it easier to read, but there's a depth in poetry there, I think, that, um, that, that can't be missed.
0: Black Beauty is published in 1877, so if our minds go to thick novels of Victorian literature, this is a lot different. Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's definitely you know it, it is very readable by uh, by young people today, and um, and then uh, it wasn't a serial novel the way that many of the earlier Victorian novels were, um, but it was a a, a novel that um, took a long time for um, Sewell to write because she wrote it in the midst of her. Um, the last illness of her life, which lasted several several years, longer than she thought she was going to live, but it was a work that she, she wanted to, to do before she, before she died, and um, fortunately she was able to do that.
0: The story behind the book, the author, and how she wrote it is interesting. We'll get to that in a few moments, but let's talk about the story in the novel Black Beauty itself. First, the character, Black Beauty. Who is Black Beauty, this, this horse who narrates for us?
1: Well, Black Beauty, as we've as we've already said, is is a horse, a horse who is, is is highly bred. So, of course, is beautiful and fine. And we actually, this is this is one of the really sophisticated things about the novel. Is so much of the conversation and the events in it around Black Beauty and Beauty's mother and later friends, both human and equine, center around class. And so Beauty was bred to be a fine carriage horse, um, and early in the, in the story, you know, her, his mother um, cautions him about hanging around with the ordinary horses who are just going to be cart horses and to, to not be uncouth or rude like them, but to have manners and gentleness and kindness. So there's all kinds of discourse about about class distinctions and, um, and and social mores in the novel that that are reflected through the voice of the horse, which is part of um, part of what what makes the novel work so well because Sewell was teaching in an entertaining story about the care of horses, but she was also teaching a lot about social values and our treatment of one another, um, and so black beauty just is sort of a vehicle for all of these lessons um, that were very popular in the Victorian age and also an important part of what novels, a lot of novels were doing at the time.
0: Well, it's probably worth saying a few things about horses and how important they were in this era. It's an era of industrialization. Why do the people of that time still need horses?
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting part of the background of of this novel, because this was a, t- it was written in a time when horses, in the middle of the Industrial Revolution, as you mentioned, and So we already have mechanization, we have trains, uh, we have lots of electricity and other tools, and horses were brought into the cities in order to transport a lot of the goods that were were, um, being manufactured and moved from place to place. Um, Horses were used a great deal in the Industrial Revolution in the cities, and they were being handled and um, owned, in many cases, um, by people who were in the city, urban urbanites, who were not familiar with horses. These weren't the aristocratic lords and ladies out in the country who handled horses for generations. These were laborers and groomers and cartiers who didn't necessarily know how to use horses, and they were treated, the horses, because it was the Industrial Revolution, they were often treated very much just like so many machines, just part of the part of the assembly process of delivering goods, um, and so um, horses. A number of horses were found themselves in the cities, which were very inhospitable in terms of buildings and roads and um, lack of knowledge of them. And so Sewell was writing right into this um, particular context, which was really a bad time for horses and a lot of animals.
0: So this is a great paradox of the time. With the rise of machines, we, or or people of the era, needed horses more than ever before. And they're often viewed not as creatures— but as extensions of machines. And that gets us into the question of animal welfare and animal rights, even.
1: It it very much does. And a lot of people don't realize that it was religious people, not just Quakers, but also even evangelicals, who were the first in the midst of this particular cultural context to call for animal welfare, uh, whether in laws or just simply advocating for it. Um, actually, a couple, of century, or a couple of decades after the publication of this, this book, William Wilberforce, the great abolitionist, helped to found the first Society for Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, because the cruelty to animals was so rampant and widespread that it was People of religious faith who valued benevolence and kindness and goodness and um, virtue, who wanted to see animals being treated better, which of course is a different issue than animal rights per se. That's that sort of has a different trajectory. But just simply treating animals with kindness because they are creatures, and also because we become brutes when we brutalize living things, uh, was a was a really um, a strong part of. of of the Christian movement uh, and evangelical movement of the late 18th century.
0: You mentioned abolition, and I've seen Black Beauty called the Uncle Tom's Cabin of the Horse, and they're both novels of social protest. They were both enormously popular commercial products. Black Beauty was a gigantic bestseller. Is that a good way of looking at it, Uncle Tom's Cabin of the Horse?
1: In some ways, it is because this movement toward um, caring about other living creatures, whether human or animal and, and um, what is called we call today empathy, but was called then sympathy or compassion, uh, was something that that characterized the Victorian age actually it wasn't it's something I think that we uh, just assume today, but we have to remember that for for thousands of years. Human beings just assumed that the state they were born in uh, would never change, whatever was their, their class or station by birth, it would remain and that no one should question that. Um, and uh, nobody really thought to improve. One's own, let alone someone else's condition. And so as social mobility grew, um, and in part because of the industrial revolution, also because of the reformation, that's a, there's a long history there. It began to, people began to imagine improving life in general, their own and other, that of others. And so sympathy and compassion, whether for one's neighbor or for the other, such as a slave, an enslaved person, or even other fellow Creatures, lower animals, was something that was just beginning to become part of the moral imagination.
0: Anna Sewell was a Quaker, as you mentioned, and her faith animated a lot of her life. It compelled her to write this book. How explicitly Christian is the book? Is it is it obvious or is it implicit to a reader?
1: I would say that at first it's it's implicit, but there are you know a couple of places where um, it, it gets pretty explicit. I think there's a very explicit echo of the teachings of Jesus in many places in the book, but one of them is toward the end, where two characters are talking about about the cruelty to horses and to people, and one says, "I'll tell you, it is because people think only about their own business and won't trouble themselves to stand up for the oppressed nor bring the wrongdoer to light." I never see a wicked thing like this without doing what I can, and many a master has thanked me for letting him know how his horses have been used. And then he continues, and this is at the end of chapter 38, my doctrine is this, that if we see cruelty or wrong that we have the power to stop and do nothing, we make ourselves sharers in the guilt.
0: So help us understand that. What is that saying then to readers?
1: It's certainly using religious language such as guilt. It's talking about, you know, uh, loving one's neighbor as oneself. Uh, And it's talking about the the responsibility that we have to stop wrong when we see it and to not just ignore it. There, This is, again, as I said, but toward the end of, of the novel. And so what we've seen chapter after chapter after chapter is numerous incidents of numerous kinds of cruelty, not just to, to horses and animals, but even of, of human beings to one another and to themselves, because we encounter characters who, um, who drink themselves to death or who uh, are, are cruel to their families or who break the Sabbath and have consequences for that. Just, their lives are out of order. Uh, and so we see this over and over. We see the consequences of um, faulty living, and then we see examples of goodness and kindness and how that spreads and increases um, beauty and goodness in the world. Again, not just for horses, but also for human beings.
0: There's another great scene toward the end of the book where a woman sees a a driver whipping a horse, and, and she engages the driver and says, quote, "'We call them dumb animals, and so they are, for they cannot tell us how they feel.'" but they do not suffer less because they have no words, unquote.
1: Mm. Yeah, that that is a powerful part of of the novel, and it actually does reflect um, a famous real-life situation, which... Um, Again, involved William Wilberforce, whom I mentioned before, who is a story about about him in the middle of 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 fighting the abolition of of slavery and also fighting cruelty to animals. Who came and by that time was famous and came across a cartman whipping a horse that had literally fallen and collapsed in the mud, which you know is told by like a generation, it's an apocryphal story, but it seems to have happened Um, when Wilberforce walks up to the, the man whipping his horse to tell him to stop the man recognizes Wilberforce and says, because it's him, he will. And he's humbled and ashamed uh, because he knows who Wilberforce is and what he stands for. And so that kind of communal, spurring one another on to good deeds and um, and setting a standard and example that Wilberforce modeled is exactly what Sewell is doing in this novel.
0: There are these scenes of cruelty in the novel, but there are also great scenes of human kindness, and it's, it's not an unrelentingly bleak novel by any stretch. There are, there are some real moments of, of love between people and animals.
1: Absolutely. And it's not just a black and white kind of good and evil picture of humanity, uh, because what Sewell is also doing, I mean, again, we've already said this is a story about a horse, but it's about so much more. So she actually brings politics into it and uh, and, and labor and wages and um, the conditions that sometimes lead even good people to make bad decisions because they're faced with, with with bad choices. So it's very much uh, a novel that's addressing a number of, of social problems, um, which, again, was another genre in the Victorian er- era, the social problem novel. Um, and so her... Her portrayals of of the horses and the the people, um, for the most part, are are pretty complicated and um, show sort of the nuances of the human condition and and human behavior, as well as horse behavior. Even the horses, she gives backstories about how, um, you know, it's their cruel treatment that that made them either skittish or mean or biting, uh, which is, you know, actually a true thing about horses and people, and so it's it's a pretty... um, insightful psychological portrayal of all
0: of these different characters. And that, in fact, is the story of Ginger, who is, I guess, the best friend of Black Beauty. She has a kind of different personality, and, and it's explained because of poor treatment early in her life.
1: Right. Ginger is a horse that Black Beauty gets matched up with at one of his many homes and becomes his best friend. And and is a again another vehicle for um sewell to show how um poor treatment and misfortune can shape a character and um ginger is a good character but she just has this sort of traumatized background and it emerges um from time to time and um and then you know their paths i don't want to give any i really want people to read this so i don't want to give too many spoilers and so their their paths do cross again later in the book and and this is, this is, again, this is a kind of realism that I think Sewell accomplishes, even though this is a very fantastical tale told by a horse. It, it's very realistic that these horses would go through so many different owners and find themselves in so many different situations because they were treated like commodities or tools and, um, used until they, didn 't serve their purpose anymore, uh, and I think you know we still see that today we see if you've ever you're out ever driving um, you might see a horse in a carriage whether it 's in the country or in the city, oftentimes these horses are not in very good condition, uh, and you might look and you might wonder about it and you shouldn't wonder about it you should actually maybe think that this is still possibly a problem animal cruelty is still rampant um, and Maybe not as as rampant as it was then, actually, because because we've been sensitized um, to it, which is good. That was that's part of Sewell's legacy. Um, but there's a lot in this novel that's actually very realistic um, in terms of the treatment of horses and the lives that they lived at that time.
0: This question of ownership is one of the things that struck me about the story of Black Beauty because Black Beauty has so many different owners across the the tale. And if this were a human story, we call it kind of a cradle-to-grave autobiography mm-hmm. of, of Black Beauty. It's, it's an animal story, obviously, so it's, you know, Black Beauty starts out as a foal, and it ends, I think it doesn't give away anything to say, ends in retirement. But you, you get you mm-hmm. get this kind of cradle-to-grave horse story, and you see all these different people and experiences and cruelty and kindness in, in what is, in many ways, a really pretty riveting and page-turning story. Yeah, it's very
1: similar to the kind of character that Charles Dickens would paint in one of his longer novels. Who goes through a number of adventures and um, misadventures throughout uh, his life, excuse <clears> me, <throat> from cradle to grave. Very, very, very similar structure and format.
0: There's another horse character I want to mention because it has a great literary reference in in Black Beauty. It's a it's a horse called Captain, who's an ex army horse, and in the telling of this story, in, 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 in conversations with, with the horses, you know, the horses talk to each other in this book, mm-hmm. we, we get a retelling of the Charge of the Light Brigade. It,
1: it's- really a, a, a clever way that Sewell handles this because it just kind of slips up on you. you've got a horse named Captain, and by the way, a lot of the the names in this uh, novel, whether of the horses or the people are are allegorical um pretty straightforward allegories and so here we have Captain and yes, and this is his story of of being in this this horrible war uh that is made. Infamous by Tennyson in the Charge of the Light Brigade, and um, and we know from that poem that many men and horses lost their lives because somebody blundered. We hear we have this, you know, this this retelling of the story from a horse's perspective. It's brilliant.
0: And there's no there's no reference to Crimea or 1854 or Alfred Lord Tennyson or the fact that the Charge of the Light Brigade is probably one of the very most popular poems ever written in the English language. You get this, this horse perspective about, um, about right. what happened.
1: Yeah, it's, it, like I said, it, it's really brilliant.
0: Now, tell us just a little bit about the author, Anna Sewell. Born 1820, dies 1878, right after she finishes Black Beauty. Uh, who is her? What is her story? How does that contribute to this great literary achievement. Hmm.
1: This is just such a a poignant part of, of this novel is that it is the only novel that Sewell published. She did work, as I said before, on it in the last years of her life, and she wanted to finish it before she died. She knew her death was imminent. And she was drawn to the story because she herself had a crippling condition that made it difficult for her to walk very much. Uh, and so she grew in increasingly dependent on horses to, to travel and even just in, in day-to-day travel. And so this exposure to them, this closeness to them, made her sensitive to their treatment. And, of course, her own condition was one, you know, with with having bad legs is actually one that is um, fatal to a horse. And so it's just a, a really touching, I think, um, origin story for the novel, um, someone who was so dependent on horses, and um, but di- didn't treat them like machines or tools, um, but used that dependency as a way to um, improve the life of these beautiful creatures.
0: Karen, I don't know anything about horses, hardly. Certainly nothing about how to train them, what kind of work they can do and not do, Etc. Uh, what do you know about them? Are they, what are they like as creatures? Are they obedient, nervous, hardy, delicate, all of the above? What are horses like?
1: <laughs> they are all of the above. I, um, I, you know, like many girls, I loved horses from a very young age. One of my earliest memories is being two years old and looking up at the nose of a horse peering down at me from a stable door. Um, and I read Black Beauty uh, when I was young, I think before I had my first horse, and I did learn almost everything I needed to know about caring for a horse, well, not quite a bit from from this novel. And what's funny is when I went back to reread it, um A few years ago, for the first time after all these years i did I did not realize how much of what I knew about horses came from that that novel um there 's so much in it that is um you know i mean horses haven 't changed so so much is that is true about their their basic needs of you know food and cleanliness and care um and so it did for me <laughs> what Sewell wanted it to do in uh, the late nineteenth century for others. Uh, in her time, who were caring for horses.
0: Children are attracted to animals generally. I've always been under the impression girls in particular are attracted to horses. <laughs> uh, I don't know if that's a stereotype, but you just mentioned it yourself. Do you think that's true, and do you have any insights into to why that mm-hmm.
1: is? You know, I'm sure there are numbers out there, and I'm sure the numbers will show that it is true. Um, I don't know them, but... I there, you know, there just is something sort of archetypal about, um, girls and, um, horses. And, you know, I, I have read over the years, a few different, um, interpretations of that. And, and I think they're probably, most of them are probably correct. I think in general, it's just, I mean, horses are, are are beautiful, majestic, powerful creatures. And I think it's a way for girls to access the kind of strength and power that maybe they don't otherwise, or at least traditionally, have felt that they could access. And then the other part of it is that You know, and we're speaking in stereotypes here, and stereotypes are not universally true, but there's truth in them. Um, Horses are extremely sensitive creatures; Um, they require they require you to be sensitive to them. You cannot force a horse or abuse a horse, and expect it to go well for you or or the horse. And so I think um, maybe horses require um, just the kind of attentiveness and sensitivity and patience um, that girls are taught to have, or maybe have innately, um, generally speaking, um, that makes the kind of rapport um, that's necessary to succeed with a horse a little bit easier to gain. So those are sort of my theories.
0: That experience then and... The irony, maybe, of the novel Black Beauty, in a sense, is that it takes a horse to tell us about our own humanity and to make us humane.
1: That is so well put. That that is um, that is exactly what I think that the that the story is doing. It's um, I think that is actually I am an animal. I'm a horse lover. I'm an animal lover. I think that animals are such a great gift from God. He could have created this earth and created us in his image without these beautiful creatures sort of in between in the middle state. But I think that we learn so much about ourselves and learn so much about our creator from this wonderful gift of animals who give us so much, but also actually do require much of us if we are going to um, care for them well. We don't always, but I think God created them in such a way that he is asking us um, to do this well uh, and, If we don't, um, then I think, you know, I think in his economy, there are consequences.
0: Let's wrap up with one more question. You've partly answered it, but let's just extend it a little bit. What is the case for reading this book now in the 2020s? This book's set in the industrial age. It seems like a a time long ago, a a world that's no longer with us. And and who is it for? And, 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 And at what age do you think you might expose kids to black beauty?
1: Hmm. That's a great question. I mean, I, I think you you've already pointed it out that we read this book to find out about ourselves and about the human condition. We learn so much about human nature from reading this book. Um, you don't have to live, you know, in the the city and in the in the industrial revolution or in the country around horses to appreciate this story. And but we all do live. Near, if not with animals. Animals are part of our lives. And so if we can learn a little bit about um, how they might experience the world, uh, then we actually learn more about ourselves. And, and even though we don't live in the anymore, we continue to exploit and oppress um, for our own gain. Um, that hasn't changed, and it won't change. The, the methods and means differ, but we still have to learn to be better stewards of all that God has given us and all that we invent and create uh, through our own human ability so that we can do better in not just material ways, but also spiritual
0: ones. Karen Swallow Pryor, thanks so much for joining us and telling us all about Black Beauty by Anna Sewell. Thanks again for having me, John. It's always a pleasure. You've just listened to the Great Books Podcast, a production of National Review. Please subscribe to the Great Books Podcast and leave reviews of the show. That helps us keep this podcast going. Send me your ideas for future episodes. You can reach me through my website at haymiller.com on Twitter. My handle is at Haymiller. Last of all, special thanks to all of you for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of the Great Books Podcast.